Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit Podcast. Today I'm here with Max County. You've done, you've founded multiple companies. You're a serial founder. You've created a, a few and now you're out there looking for acquisitions and stuff. So we're going to have an interesting conversation today about that process, you know, your history and kind of what you're looking for. So I'm looking forward to this. Usually I have advisors and lawyers and other stuff on there, but it, lately I've been trying to get some people that are right in the mix of things and It'll be fun. We'll brainstorm some stuff too. Like what's what's working for you, what's not working for you. So thank you for being here today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ron. Cool. So let's start off with that. The ongoing joke is always the origin story, right? Like you were born and now you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. How the hell do you end up on my show? Like fill in the gap for us. Tell us how you got it to be an entrepreneur and kind of fill in the journey a little bit of, you know, from from your beginning entrepreneur uh, adventures till now. I guess I was born an entrepreneur. I, I started, uh, I, I went to college. My dad always uh, used to joke with me and say, yeah, I used to watch, uh, watch all these shows about the success stories of different entrepreneurs. And, and so I, right out of college, I studied architecture and I, I went to, I actually left and went to London and in London, I was, you know, I was going to conquer the world. I'm not sure how yet, but I was going to find out something. And so in London, I started working for Domino's Pizza at night and I hired a, a rented a small little office at the time, shared office space. And this was just sort of in the age of PCs. It shows my age. <laughs> but uh, so I, I even remember going and buying a second hand, an old typewriter. That's been, 30 years old and wait a, a way to turn, grab that typewriter, pulled it across on the tube on London and, and started typing letters and looking for opportunities. And I came across, I found some uh, ex friends of mine, all the colleagues, they weren't even friends. They were associates that I sort of met in passing when I was leaving. And uh, they had a quarry, a granite quarry in South Africa. And I started selling their granite to Italian producers in Carrara. So I'd go over to Carrara and I did very well. Got a lot of orders, got some orders out of uh, uh, Scotland as well. Then it was, it came to light after supplying of some of the products that uh, there was a imperfection in the granite. Anyway, long story short, ended up taking some geologists back to analyze the quarry and see if we could, could find a solution to this problem. And they couldn't. So that, that collapsed and I started my next business when I was 26 at the end. And I, that business was basically specialty, especially spackling product actually it was a DIY product used for repairing buildings and patching holes. When I started that business, I lived in my office. I had a small office that I was renting with a small little warehouse space. And I lived there for about a year. My staff would you know, wake up, I wake up in the morning and my staff would arrive and we would work and. I did that and I bootstrapped that business from one employee to about a hundred full-time employees. You know, some of the stories I later hired an, an astute gentleman who was a, 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 a chemist and he would look at the formulas that I had created because I created all these formulas myself and he would shake his head and he, he didn't understand how I'd achieved all this without a, a chemical engineer. And it really was trial and error. And I think that's the. I can say anything about entrepreneurship, it's trial and error, right? You try something, it works, you continue to do it, doesn't work, you fail, you try again. And, and you just carry on doing that cycle until you get some sort of satisfaction and results. And then later on, while I had that business, I started another business in health and wellness. We were one of the first certified USD organic products in the US supplements. And one of the first 
the USDA certified skincare products on the market. And it took a few years, a couple of years to develop that, worked very closely with the certifying agencies. And then grew that and was busy growing it. This was in the internet age. I actually was writing a ton of content, was doing all white hat SEO techniques, search engine optimization techniques to, to make sure we were featuring right at the top of the search engines and doing very well and had exceptional growth. Um, and I actually was number one, two, three, four, the first 10 top results, we were number, we were on the first page of keywords like natural vitamin, organic vitamin, organic skincare, or natural, natural, you know, organic, natural skincare. And then I think Google didn't like what we were doing, although it was all white hat techniques and we, they, they essentially blacklisted us. And, uh, so we had to find alternatives. So once again, had a failure and then had to find alternatives to try and grow and continue growing. Then I, I went through a divorce and I ended up selling all my businesses and uh, now I'm back in it. Um, I'm looking for opportunities and I've teamed up with Novastone Capital. We're a, a family office out of Zurich, Switzerland, and uh, they're supporting me on my search. And I'm looking for a business in those areas that I have expertise. That's health and wellness products, personal care and beauty products, food and beverage, specialty chemicals. And I'm also looking opportunistically at, as alternative health. Sorry, alternative energy and green energy or renewable energy plays either directly or indirectly. So how did you find the, the backer? How did you find in your financial backer? Did you already know them? Was there a relationship there? Did you reach out? Like, how did you discover the uh, private equity group? Well, yeah, the truth is I've never really had capital or any backing. I've done it all, you know, bootstrapped in my own, my own means. Of course, maybe a line of credit from a bank, but that's about all. And so actually connected by chance, somehow I ended up on their website, saw it a few times. I think they were connecting me, got a couple of emails and then eventually I said, oh, let me try it. Let's see what happened. And uh, did the application. It was grueling. It took about six months. It was like a mini MBA, I believe. I think, you know, we've been told about 800 applicants on in total. And they whittled that down, whittled that down over six months. And we came through with five of us in my cohort. And then I was one of the first to apply, uh, start. And then some of the people that call us, I think you've interviewed them actually from my cohort. So yeah, that's how I got involved in that. And I knew, to be honest, I knew very little about search funds and all you know, the whole program. And I've learned so much since I've started. It's interesting. I've interviewed a lot of people about search funds. And uh, I learned a lot. And one of the things I learned is they actually have a timeline. There is a mini MBA. Like a lot of times they pull, they're pulling people straight out of MBA courses, but they have their own education. There's a certain level of skills and preparedness they want that individual to have to be, to prepare them to be the CEO of a company. So yeah. a lot of people think they're going to go get a funded search and buy a business in six months. And I'm like, well, you probably shouldn't tell the search funders that because they have a criteria in their head. They have a a process in their head to groom you to be that investor, to be that CEO operator. I've talked to, you know, dozens by this point, uh, people who have done the search fund route. I've even talked to some people that started that search fund, the whole process. Dave Dotson, his, his episode will come out any day now. By the time this one's out, it's probably going to be out. But uh, he's the Stanford professor that teaches ETA and search funds. He was also, he created the second or third search fund ever. The first one came out of Harvard. I don't think right. he did. Right. Not, yeah. And he actually went and met with them. They decided to create their own. And it was either the second or third search fund ever. But um, one of the lessons I did learn is that whole, like you said it was a mini MBA. There right. is a training. There, there's a vetting process and a training process where they know they're placing bets on you. Like they'll, they'll fund your search, but they also want to be first in line to contribute funds to the actual acquisition most of the time. Correct. Correct. So they're investing a lot of money and you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a traditional cert. you know, the traditional cert are much younger, maybe five years of experience, new MBA, younger. Mm-hmm. And there, and there's reasoning behind that. The Stanford studies they've done, you know, all analysts that our, our program's a little older. We typically have 20, 25 years of experience and most of us in late forties and older. So a little bit of a different model, but I mm-hmm. think value in both. Obviously I'm biased, but I don't think the old dog should be kicked out just yet. 
And I think we bring a lot of value, but I think the vetting process that you were talking about, I think what's important, and I've spoken to a lot of aspiring search funders and some you know, young guys that are actually launched the search fund successfully. And actually they found, they've actually reported, given me feedback. And one of the things that's sort of common in the, in the denominator was it was easier for them to raise the money than it was for them to find the business. And that, that's interesting because for me, it was always the other way around, right? I always struggled with capital, but I think because they come out of these uh, universities that have such a strong community around the search fund community, those universities have massive amounts of capital and a lot of skill and support for those uh, search funders. So I think it's a fantastic program. And the more you learn about it, the more you get into it, the more, uh, you know, the more you're fortunate about it, for sure. I think up until about, maybe I'm wrong here. Somebody that listened to this can send me an email and tell me I'm totally wrong. That's okay. I think until probably 10, maybe 15 years ago, it was nearly exclusively Ivy League. I graduated, my master's degree, my MBA was in 2007, I think. I don't recall like ever hearing about ETA, you know, and I have an MBA in marketing. I never heard about, like, we didn't discuss acquiring companies and all that stuff. If there was a course on that, I probably would have taken it. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I did marketing because it was the thing that was at my time, at that time was my weakest point. And I thought, well, I got to do something to support my entrepreneurial side. So it's either accounting or, or marketing and there's better looking women in the marketing program. So I went that way. So I was single at the time, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm even, I've got some interns that I work with and I've been through a few interns and I encourage them. I said, look, find out if there's anything at your university. If there isn't, start a group, start a, a, a discussion, maybe talk to some of the business uh, professors, uh, you know, try and get them involved. And absolutely, if, if the university doesn't have it, I'd encourage, I encourage all those young students now while they're at school, at college, start the process now. You don't have to wait till you graduate. You can actually start developing the connections and the infrastructure and the learning experience that you need in order to be successful. Because I think what's, what, what is different is a good search, uh, searcher is not only a good manager and operator, but he's also a good entrepreneur. He, he has an entrepreneurial spirit to get that outsized return that, you know, that investors are looking for. It's a lot safer for the investor too. You're buying something that's already up running. They're going to help vet those. The investors will help you vet it. They're not going to back or help you invest in something they don't believe in too. In the world of founders, you've done it five, six times now, right? In the world of founding a business, you've got to find an idea, act upon the idea, put it and create a product or a service, put it in front of the market, get product market fit, get some traction, all that stuff, right? So it's yours to create. In this business acquisition world, that's all already up and done and done. And you're buying something. And what I like to joke and say, the difference between buying a company and funding one is if, or building one is if you build it, you got to figure it all out. It's yours to create. And if you buy it, it's yours to mess up. But you know, I've done both. I've founded businesses and it's a massive undertaking. It's an enormous amount of energy required to get that initial million dollars in sales, even hundred thousand dollars in sales. It's really quite a, cause you've got to create it and you've got to market it and you've got to really get traction in you know, you know, but once you buy it and I, I've bought a few businesses and one of the mistakes I will say is just be careful not to make too many changes too quickly. You come in, we come in with a little bit of arrogance and maybe that's where the older good dogs have a bit of experience. Sometimes you make small changes that you think, oh yeah, this is much better but not necessarily for the consumer or the customer, right? Or, or, or the employees or, or even the suppliers. So you've got to be very careful. And, and I think I bought a business in Florida, one of my first business in the U S and, and we had an agreement. They would, I was pulled out of the deal that I wanted to, but anyway, I went ahead with it called brand new in the U S and they trained me for whatever it was, three months and everything was great. And then she walked out of the door and I realized as she walked out, I was just like, there goes off my business, right? And the, and the reason was that she brought, she had the relationship with some of those customers, the key customers for years, and that relationship hadn't transferred yet. And so it's very important. It's subtle things like that, that are so important to transfer. And so I think it's, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I, I go back to Warren Buffett as an example. Warren Buffett buys a business. He tells the existing staff and management. Carry on doing what you've been doing for the past 10 years, for the next 10 years, and I'll see you later. So there, there is, there's validity and there's a good reason to continue doing what was being done because right. it obviously it was proving and making money. And it's, it's one thing to improve on it, but one has to be very careful not to destroy it. It's quite easily done. 
I'm a huge fan of the three questions, and sometimes four. I told you before the podcast, yeah. and we'll, we'll ask Work some on. of the some of those about some of the projects you've worked on. But I think the same thing goes when you acquire a company. I haven't bought anything this big yet, so you know my goal is buy something eventually that has 30, 40 employees. And sit down with them and, and run through the same questions. What are we doing really well? Like just just have them dump everything they think that the company's doing really well. It's like cool. What can we do better? So my my four questions are always. What are we doing really well? What can we do better? And what are we totally missing? What is our customer need that we just don't do? And then the fourth one is occasionally you need to ask, what are we totally doing that's a waste of time and money, right? What are we doing right now that just isn't working? We just, that's pretty much the agenda of almost every call and meeting. Sometimes when you're doing well, it's not always self-evident. Sometimes it might be customer service. It might be the way you approach it. It might be just that, you know, service that you give that you don't realize. So it's very, it's an absolutely amazing question. I love the full question. And then I plan on like, even with this podcast and with the newsletters I run and everything like that, we're gearing up right now to do that with some of the listeners, get eight or 10 of them on the call, like a Zoom call. And that's the agenda. What are we doing well? Right. What can we do better? What are we totally missing? What do you guys need to move your game forward? All right. Right. That we're not talking about and we're not giving you that information because we're here to serve. So I think if you did that when you acquire a company too, is go to the customers and go, what are we doing really well? Absolutely. You know, customers will tell you what they need, right? Hey, you know what? It would be nice if I, instead of having two of the companies, you do both these service tools or both these products, then I wouldn't have to have two suppliers. It's done simple things like that. And you like, yeah, absolutely. When you say, what are we missing? A lot of times I'll tell you, like, I'm, I'm using three suppliers to build my product. Well, you make gear number one, but you don't make anything bigger than X, Y, and Z. I need one that's almost twice that size. I get it from this other company. If you guys made that, at the quality you make the other one, we'd go with you in a heartbeat, right? Um, You're missing business by not asking your customers. And then, you know, that's the, what are we totally missing? That's the third question in that series is like, what do we, you know, what can we approve upon? Like you don't answer our calls or whatever it is, like customer service or whatever. That fourth one is, is uh, for my employees, a lot of times it's like, what are we just totally missing? <laughs> I mean, what are we like, what are we doing that's wasting money and time? So let's go to your, I think one of the things you did in your first business, you're talking about the granite. You had a problem. The granite had you know, imperfections that wouldn't make it made it not resell, resellable. You sent engineers there. I didn't even think of that. That a lot of times, even though you might have a rock quarry, your slabs might be maybe it's granite, like you said, but the slabs not of quality to have consistent piece that would work in construction. Maybe it's better to I don't know what else you use granite for. Uh, well, they had a they had a very uh, cutting edge technology of essentially cutting the granite out of the ground. Mm -hmm. using dynamite and, and it was a very an older tech and it wasn't great and so they were hoping to be able to find a deposit out of the whole deposit that didn't have the imperfection and essentially cut that out and then and mine that aspect of it yeah but, like it, it proved they couldn't do it it was just too technically challenging but yeah so then you didn't have a pivot at that point so you did you said you ended up having to shut that one down yeah i mean i was what 23 24 years old <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so I started again. And so what I did is actually started five opportunities and mm -hmm. I think, well, one of them, I'll see which one gets traction. And so I, I did five different things sort of simultaneously. And the one that took traction is the one I put my, you know, which eventually put more energy into it and ran with that. But that was, that's my strategy. And I do it even today. I look at five opportunities. I mean. Even joining Novastone was one opportunity of others and that one gained traction and that's where I ran. So, um, but yeah, sometimes that's how I run. So when you said you bought a company in the United States, is that how you got your product to the United States? It's one of the easiest ways to like, to get into another market or another country is you buy a company there and then you got, now you got a channel to put your product through. Is that how you brought your organic products to the United States or did you already have them here? No, that's exactly right. I bought it to, as a channel. I initially started with a joint venture distributing, but the truth is I didn't know the U.S. market. I didn't know the market. I mean, it was completely different. I, mm -hmm. I, I didn't live here at the time. So I, I bought it and then moved here. I met a girl and so that helped. And, uh, but it, it was my school fees. And so buying a business, if you, if you hadn't had the experience in the industry, and that's what I find that fascinating about the search model, to be honest, because I, I, I think it's, it's fascinating to get involved in the industry you don't know, and then having to learn the industry because there's definitely school fees that have to be paid and hopefully you can do it and not, you know, bankrupt the investors. Right. So I think that's probably one also a, a 
a quality of a good searches to be able to learn quickly and from mistakes and adjust and, and move forward. But so, yeah. And so I, the mistake I made well, a couple of mistakes. So one is I underestimated the relationship situation, but it taught me the industry. And then from that, I was able to transfer form that company, which was essentially a, a retail company into a manufacturing company. And so that was a massive transformation and I was able to do that, but you know, that wasn't ideal. It wouldn't have been a good search model for sure. So at this stage, how did you overcome her walking away with all those relationships? Did you call her back in and tell her to introduce you to everybody or how did you overcome that? Well, I just went forward and worked with what I had and made an effort to connect and build relationships, you know, as fast as I could. In hindsight, if I had to do it, look, she wasn't coming back. <laughs> she was done. If I had stipulated that prior, yes, that would have yeah. been. And that's why going forward and in my search, I am looking to keep the founder on board. I think the founder has and knows the business better than anybody that they, they created it. Or even if they're not the original founder, but they are, they have been running it for 10 years or 15 or 20 years. They're going to know the business and it takes time to transfer that. And it's relationships with customers, suppliers and, and employees, of course. But it's also knowledge and deeper knowledge and a deep understanding of the industry if you're not an industry expert yourself. So I think that's very, very important is to keep that on board, keep those founders somehow involved, all those, all those sellers, and just, you know, have an access point. Even if it's a sounding board, I think one of the, the, the lessons, one of my big takeaways of things I haven't done well in the past is I, I didn't have everything. I was an individual. I was self-created, self-funded. I had my staff around me my employees around me, my team around me, but I didn't have critical, I didn't have, have experienced entrepreneurs to, to be able to give me feedback and say, Hey, no, maybe do it this way, that way, that way. And so I think keeping that founder on board, even as a sounding board is say, Hey, I'd like to do this. And he's like, no, that's a stupid idea. And he'll give you a reasons why it might sound critical, but if you can't overcome the founder skepticism and they at least will fine tune you to know, okay, these are the issues, these are the problems. Then you overcome those to move forward in your strategy. It's interesting. One of the businesses you had kind of piqued my interest. I grew up a painter's son, so I've used, oh, right. I've probably used more spackling than most people on the planet, right? From the time I was about, I, I worked for, for him, my father, him and I, we worked together. Oh, I was probably old enough to crawl up the ladder, probably 12 or 13. But um, the spackling business, you said you created that was like you took gymsum or whatever they call that and made the paste itself or what it like, you actually formulated one or you bought something and resold it? No, I formulated it and I formulated a lot of product, but, but, you know, they're interesting. I've, I've left a little bit out of the story because of course of time, but interesting. You told me that about your product. So my dad was in the industry and he had a retail shop mm -hmm. and, and I said, Hey, I've had this idea. I actually got the idea in Europe. Ironically, I was running around Europe and mm -hmm. I, Hey, I want to do this and this and this. And he's like, yeah, okay. It was very dubious. And so he, he, he kind of help finance the initial 50,000 or whatever to get off the ground. And uh, I, we actually had two separate companies. He did, he's, he did mostly paints and I did all the sundry products, waterproofing compounds, we did epoxies, we did even did lubricants. We even did artistic paints at some point. We did a wide range, about a hundred different products. And I would sublime him and we kind of were, not to my, but he, we kind of were competing with each other, to be honest, but he was in a different market. When I was big enough and I was manufacturing, we had massive machines and everything. And he actually went and got into trouble. And I actually came and bought him out and merged him with me. So we eventually ended up merging together, working together. And he did his side of the business. I had to leave him alone. I couldn't tell him what to do. Yeah, I can give him guidance, but basically <laughs> I ran the other side. But together, of course, we were strong. So you grew up around a painting store and am I... My, my father, not I, t I told you half the story. He was a painter, remodeler. I, I did that. That that was his side gig. What? So he actually worked for a company called Anchor Paint, and we manufactured paint there. Oh, wow. For 44 or 46 years, he worked at a paint manufacturing company where, and I would work there on the lake when I, by the time I was old enough to be there, right? I worked there there in the summers. And then during the, from the time I graduated high school until I joined the military, I'd work there during the winter for sure. Most of the time, even during the summer, I'd put in hours over there. And you know, talking about solvent-based products, so one of the things was, you know, I, I, and I've done it in my organic business, was to find new products and new technologies that are cleaner and greener 
and, and, and better and healthier. And so we developed a lot of, at the time, you know, water-based, a lot of the technology came out of the U.S., but we developed and worked with, uh, and we were one of the first to market with water-based enamels and water-based epoxies and things like that. Uh, you know, to, to get away from that solvent-based product. So interesting. Very. Yeah. Yeah. When I left there, they were starting to have to do that a lot. They still had an oil-based side, but they were right. starting to have to make a lot of water-based stuff and, right. and water-based enamels and that type of stuff. I've often thought about reaching out because now they're on the third or fourth generation. I've often thought about reaching out to, to them and saying, Hey, would you like to sell your company? Cause I think it'd be cool to buy the company my father worked at for right. a year. But, uh, then the other side of me says, yeah. That place has been there for 52 years now or something. It was like only open for a few years before my, maybe 60 something years now, because my dad's been gone for 15, but uh, it's only, it was only open a few years before he went to work there. He worked there the whole time that place was open. It's been on the same site and same facility before EPA standards came in place. Let's talk about uh, what you're looking for now. Like you've had a really cool wide variety, everything from granite to, we both had that chemical paint thing that you move, you moved from something that's probably pretty harsh, chemical and pigments and paint to organic. And now you find yourself out there, you're looking for your next acquisition. Let's talk about the search criteria. You, you mentioned it earlier, but revamp that real quick and then we're going to dive a little bit deeper into it. So basically looking for a business, 2 million EBITDA, about 6 million EBITDA, enterprise value of about 15 to 50 million. And so part of my thesis, investment thesis is uh, onshoring and nearshoring. I believe with new technologies, uh, both with AI and robotics, that more and more technology can be applied to our manufacturing facilities down in the U.S. and become competitive. I think also COVID showed, uh, I looked at some businesses during COVID, their competition, which was coming, most of the stuff was coming out of the Far East. You know, container rates went from $2,000 a, a container to $22,000 a container. And lead times went from the three months to six months, if, if you could even get it. And uh, then the other business I looked at, they were they had nearshoring, which wasn't in the U.S., but very close, three-hour flight next day. So, yeah. you know, they, they place the order today, they get it tomorrow, essentially. So uh, my whole focus is nearshoring and onshoring and essentially manufacturing. And I'm quite open. I have my sort of niche, but I'm, I'm really looking for a business I can just look at and get very passionate about. And I have a, a wide background in it and experience in manufacturing. So it might not be that I know it exactly, but I think I'll have sufficient background in order to learn to grow it. So there, there's where we verge. You want manufacturing and you want products. I don't believe in or that I want to mess with what I call SIB about businesses, right? I'll be nice and call it stuff. So stuff in a box. Try any business where I have to make stuff, put stuff in a box, put the box of stuff on the shelf, ship the box somewhere, maybe even to a warehouse and then ship it to the end party. That whole logistics of storage, inventory, all that just doesn't appeal to me mainly because I've watched what happened during COVID and what, and, and I've had a small business in that realm where you get the product shipped back to you. It's constant logistics. You know, there is a play inside of it. I get it. There's people in the world that want to do it. That's awesome. It's not my thing. There's where we verge, right? We both had painting, paint related careers. We're both entrepreneurs. You want to be in the manufacturing space and create stuff that goes in boxes and gets shipped out. I don't want anything to do with anything that has to be put in a box. <laughs> I don't necessarily, I mean, it'll be in a box, but it doesn't have to be consumer facing. Ideally, I'm looking business to business. So okay. raw materials. Uh, so anything business to business is my, my primary focus. I know some people that have done things like, uh, there's a company in Tulsa that I don't, it's gone now. I don't know what they're up to now. But uh, they tried recycling, so uh, they would, it was called upcycled plastics, and they would regrind and wash certain plastic and then sell it. And the problem with that, uh, theirs was anyway, is the market was kind of up and down, so the price of the regrind eventually got to a point where it wasn't worth them the, the, the time, the energy, and the labor it took to, right. to get it to a sellable product. They couldn't produce it and still cut a profit, for what I understand. But um, there's got to be... Like a lot of stuff that meets the criteria of being a manufacturer and being in that green space, right? Uh, they're correct. Well, with an opportunity to get into it, right? So maybe, yeah. maybe not in there right now, but there's a trend in that direction, new products, new techniques. Talking about painting, we both have painting backgrounds. I was reading about a company that essentially has a robot to paint buildings, right? And so then, you know, because labor is very, very, very hard to come by nowadays in the U.S. So there's always a mechanization somewhere. And, and I, I like manufacturing, but I also like distribution of products. I just like a repeat, repeat 
daily business, but that's my background as well. So I've tended right. all of that. Services is a very interesting business. A lot of people do very well in it. And maybe there's a combination of it, um, but I'm not, I must be honest, I'm not an expert in services. There's something in that recycling space. I helped do a little bit of web work for them. And I had some other people, friends of mine that did okay in the recycling space. I was really interested in it for a while. I had a friend that did electronics recycling, basically uh, took computers and all that from all the companies, tore them down their basic components and then sold it to be like metal extracted from it. And then some of the stuff just had to be, you know, basically waste as little as possible, sell as much as you can from scrap metal. And then the plastic recycling company, the one thing that kept coming across the table and we got offered tons, like literally, we'll give you as many truckloads of it as you want, was rubber tires because nobody knew what, anything they could do with recycling rubber tires. I actually know uh, somebody uh, out of California that has a patent on something using recycling tires and using it in, uh, I won't even say it because it's, it's, I don't want to reveal it, but yeah, it's very, very interesting. And I have actually looked at some businesses that manufacture ma machinery that is used to recycle equipment and plastic yeah. and things like that. It's a very, it's an interesting business. It still seems to be in its infancy. But I think, I think there's a lot of growth potential going forward, yeah. So there's two different styles of businesses, though. You want to be in a business that's generating revenue, profits, and sustains itself now. And there's businesses out that are trying to change the future. And you know, I think Elon Musk did really good with Tesla. Like the whole point of Tesla, he's, he's never really concerned. If you, if you listen to him, you don't, if I was one of his shareholders, I'd be scared snotless. I don't, own, I don't own Tesla stock because if you listen to him talk, he's like the product. The point of Tesla is it isn't to make the most money possible. The point of Tesla is to further the use of electric and electrical cars and electrical things that, you know, a lot of the technology, they don't patent any of their technology. They give them away, right? So any of their, like their, they've got motors in that thing that are only designed by Tesla. They don't patent stuff. They, uh, their solar roofs and their solar battery pack came from technology engineers that they learn stuff by building the cars and better ways to store energy. None of that stuff patent. All the other, all the other car makers and stuff can just look right at their their stuff, their designs. They make they basically open sourced all of it. Yeah, it's an interesting model for sure. Yeah, visionary. I think I think there's two types. I guess coming back to searches, and I'm no expert on all searches. You you probably had more you know in, insight on this than myself. But even managers generally, I think they're very. There's some managers that are just good operators, and there's some managers that are good operators and visionary. Uh, there's some managers that are bad operators and <laughs> visionaries, but we'll ignore those for now. But I think if you want to operate the business, grow the business organically in its existing sphere. But as far as I'm concerned, when I want to, I'm, I want to buy a boring business and make it sexy. And by doing that, I want to apply technologies that might be cutting edge. So, you know, you, you're running, you're doing well in what you're supposed to be doing. You're growing organically where you're supposed to be growing and you're looking for opportunities, joint ventures and all new technologies, which you can apply to your industry to change the dynamic and become a market leader in your area. And I think if you're able to do that, it's very difficult to do, but if you're able to do that, I think there's a huge opportunity. So it's almost like having a private equity play with a venture capital mindset as well. So right. right. I can get that. I can see doing something like a lot of, there's a lot of industries out there that are very common. They're very toxic as far as the materials and products they have to produce. The one that's coming to my mind night, like it was roofing. It's like the people who make asphalt shingles and that stuff. Horrible, horrible, like, you know, thing, but in order to last 25, 30 years on the roof, they use chemicals and tar and other stuff on those shingles that eventually gets rinsed off and that stuff gets into, a lot of people don't realize that that stuff gets into the ground water and everything else, right? Now, the trick is, could you buy a, a roofing company that does roofing and then like introduce a green product to it? Like, you know, or at least, you know, something less toxic or even an upcycled product like the tire, like the, you know, the, the recycling tires in the roofing or something. That would be an interesting play to, to, to consider. You know, I think that's a, a good example. We'll take a mundane product and create, I mean, that's essentially what all these new technologies do, right? They take. Outside of tech, of course, in, in electronics and software, but in mundane products, I think the new technology that's going to start happening is we're going to recreate products that are mundane and make them better, safer, and greener. And I think there's huge opportunity in that. You know, whatever one does, do it in a greener way. And then look, all the corporations and all these huge companies and medium-sized businesses are really pushing that. 
that way. But I think smaller companies aren't doing it. So if you buy a smaller company, there's an opportunity to do it. It's much harder to rectify a big ship that's been a massive production. They could start with a smaller company and then grow that. That is a new opportunity on your product. So I do, I, I'm very, I'm very passionate about being green. When I'm green, I don't like to greenwash stuff, but practical, real, uh, changing, you know, not something that's just top line. Oh, it sounds great, but something that has real value, either saves money, saves, makes it more efficient. It has to make economic sense. If we can find solutions that make economic sense, they'll be implemented much, much faster and more effectively than if they don't. And that's the real trick, right? It's one thing to say, this solves this problem, but to say, to find something that both solves a problem and makes financial a good business, right? right. It's the whole recycling business. A lot of people don't get how dirty the recycling business is. A lot of times we all put our stuff in the tubs and when you see all these exposés where they follow those tubs and most of those tubs end up at the dump anyway. It's just because a lot of that stuff is inherently hard to recycle. It's not economically viable with the current technologies. So solving that problem would be amazing. Well, another, another example of a mayoron is, for example, buying a plastics company and then finding a green plastic that's biodegradable, right? Yeah. And, and moving in that direction, because that's my passion. Microplastics and the environment are like we concerned. They're getting, they're getting in everywhere. I was reading some sort of papers on it where, you know, microplastics are now so small and they break down. Plastic doesn't actually break down completely, but the UV breaks it down to these small, small pieces, getting into the fish, just getting into our food supplies, getting into our kidneys and livers. And all that. So it's essentially a toxicity to the whole planet. And one way of doing it is getting away from plastic altogether where we have a true biodegradable product. And so that's sort of one of my, was one of my ideas by a plastics company and they use new technologies where we start offering a green product and then slowly introduce that, but it has to be economically viable. It has to work fairly effectively and it has to be price competitive. So, you know, there's a lot of hurdles to overcome, but I think it is possible. I think, I think what we're touching on, you know, these different technologies might sound all highfalutin, but I think that the point is if you're running a business and there's opportunity, there's so many opportunities to, to find either new efficiencies, you know, reducing efficient, uh, you know, labor costs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or just creating new products that have better for the environment. And I, I think small businesses possibly have an advantage. I don't know if they do, they used to before Google. You know, you do a search on Google and it's all just corporations. It took 15 years ago, you did a search and it was all these small companies. So I don't know how long the small advantage to small business will last, but for now, just, just being more creative. And I think it's important to be a good operator, but I think it's also important to have a bit of vision and be creative and look for new opportunities as well. Are there any businesses in that realm? You're just like, where there's red flags, like I'm not interested in X, right? So I, I know like. For instance, I have a buying criteria for buying criteria for websites, blogs, newsletters, the stuff and stuff I'm looking for. But uh, I kind of have a criteria where if it takes more than five people to uh, to run it, then I'm it better be pretty big, right? I'm looking for things that are very efficient. In in that space, anything less than a 75% profit margin is running really poorly. Most of the time, these things run on really high profit margin. That said. Occasionally, you'll find somebody who has a six-figure blog and the thing's barely making any money because he's got six writers and he's just doing it all wrong. Is there anything inside of the space, inside of your search, that says, you know, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z, but I won't buy, like, I'm looking for blogs and newsletters and stuff, but I don't do anything that's risque. I don't do any adult stuff. I'm not interested in any, you know, political stuff, anything that's very racially or... Um, uh, spiritually biased one way or the other. I'm just not interested in any of that garbage. To me, it's just a, it's an energy drain. It might be very profitable, but to me, I, I see it as like, that's just going to suck energy out of my life. Are there things inside of your search criteria like, I'm not interested in going down this path? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a long list of not, not interests. I think there's a, a much shorter list of interests. Okay. Uh, I've looked at some cannabis companies, amazing companies growing exponentially, very profitable. Just not, not, not my area of expertise. I think you've got to be able to use the product to know that, to sell the product and I don't use it. So, you know, I, in that type of thing, and I think generally speaking, if I just look at the business and if you have to have a good feel for it, and yeah. if it's something you feel you can be passionate about that you can, you, you see a vision for it and, and you really want to get involved in it, then I think then it's a good fit. But if it's something where you, you look at it and you're like, eh, I don't really know the industry that well. 
I find fascinating in the search industry, in the traditional search industry, because in, in my in area of expertise in Lodestone, we are very focused on our past experience and sort of all around that past experience. But in the traditional search, a lot of the searches are uh, industry agnostic. And I've spoken to a few of them and a lot of them end up in SaaS after six months of deciding what to do. And so just a memo to you guys, maybe start in SaaS. No, just joke. <laughs> Uh, but the point is that I think it's a little more difficult if you're industry agnostic completely and you have to find an industry you have passion for. And I right. think that's probably the first phase of the search in a traditional search is you, you've got to find an industry you're really excited about and then focus in that area. Do you believe you've got to have passion and because passion leads to creativity, creativity leads to new opportunities. So, right. you know, that's just my view. It's very common in Oklahoma. All my real estate investor buddies are like, hey, we should get in here, open this cannabis shop with you. I wasn't interested. And it's like, one, it's still not federally okay. So right. you've got a lot of uh, problems. And the secondly, because it's not federally okay, you got to be careful going state to state. Most of the people, at least in Oklahoma, most of the people that were operating one were operating something like it before it was legal at all. So their mentality is that they still do things they probably shouldn't. I have friends right now that are in trouble because they partnered with somebody else that knew the space. Right. And the person knew in the space was taking stuff in or out of the state. And now they're facing charges. Right. Right. And because they're a partner in it or invested in it or funded it, they face the same charges as the guy that like wow. was on it and did the broke the law. So they can go to jail. Not interested in that at all. But inside of that space, there's something I would be interested in seeing a lot more happen with. And that's hemp hemp paper, hemp concrete. There's just, there's a tremendous amount of use for that fiber. We used to use many, many years ago, we used it really well. We made clothes out of it, rope out it and everything else. And then we fell out of favor in it. I think it's better than trees. I think we could make paper and other products out of it way better. So that might be a play that if you bought like a paper manufacturer or somebody that did a cardboard manufacturer, or whatever, and then you switch the, the fiber over to something that's green and re reproducible, that'd be fun to see happen. That, that is very interesting. I did look, uh, you know, at, was a feedstock for something in one of the projects I was working on, and uh, I considered that as well. And I'm not an expert on it, but I believe it grows very quickly too. As you say, I mean, that could be a whole play, uh, you know, as a, as a replacement for, for trees and foresting. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's the kind of natural and, and, and new thinking that I think is, is required, or I'd, I'd like to think anyway. I think... I'm, I'm self-funded, uh, well, I'm not self-funded right now, but I was, I was a bootstrap my entire life. So every single cent counted, I would, you know, my, my, my mentality is ingrained in me is I have to spend this 10 cents. Am I going to get 15 cents in return? Right. Yep. And I might not get it now. I might get it five years down the line, but what we're going to get a, we're going to get a 30 cents return, whatever it is, but you've got to, you've got to make sure you're getting a return on your investment. So it's not pie in the sky thinking these things can be done on the side as new developments, a new product and R and D. I think one of the things I did do well was developing new and unique products. And that put us on the map in, in, in my businesses. But what was some of the areas I didn't do well, I, I can raise a long list of those. <laughs> but is, so, so I think it's important to, to be open and be creative and drive it from the top because your R&D department, one thing, but you know, your holes, I mean, that's essentially what Elon Musk does, right? I mean, that's what he does very well. He takes his businesses and he drives the vision of where he wants the future of them to go. He's not sitting in the lab actually doing a lot of this stuff, but he's involved in it to a point where he understands it and then he, he can drive it where he feels it's appropriate. And I think it's important to understand your business. I always find it fascinating when, when a CEO doesn't even know how to manufacture something, right? You see the shows, the hidden, the, the CEO undercover, and the CEO goes and he has to be on the line and does all this stuff. And he realizes, oh my gosh, this is actually a lot of work. And there's, there's ways we could make this far more efficient. And mm -hmm. so I think you've got to be, you've got to have a holistic approach to the business, understand all aspects of it and, uh, and be able to, um, be creative as well. If you truly understand it, you're also creative. You brought up an interesting point that I share with people when they, because people still pitch me for ideas and stuff like, Hey, I got this idea. I want you to fund it and tell them I don't, but I'll hear your idea and we'll, we'll play the brainstorming game. I'll help you with it. Right. The end of the story is most of the time I'll tell them most of their ideas are products or something they want to create. And I usually tell them, go find a company. You said this or, or, kind of in passing in your statement there is go find a company that's already producing something similar. That would be a beneficial product to be in their product line, right. but it's already up. It's already running. And, Preferably, it's so profitable that it can fund 
your idea for your new product. Right. Now you've got a bunch of different things, right? Now you've got a company with existing customers, product market fit, loyalty and rapport with those customers. You introduce something new, your idea, you're buying the company because you know it fits to that customer criteria. And you're going to find out within weeks as opposed to you create a minimal viable product, basically the minimum thing you can get to a customer in front of them and see if they use it and get the feedback. You'll know right away whether or not it was a, a win or a loss. And then you can expand on it. The same thing you can do if you wanted to add green products and stuff is find a space in it that could use that improvement. Now you come up with your own little product ideas that say, I could improve it doing this. But meanwhile, it's generating revenue and it can afford to pay for your, your idea lab your uh, visionary side of it instead of the operator side, right? I agree. I mean, use it as part of your R&D. You know, you should always yep. be R&D and new development. If it's a product or a service or a software, it doesn't matter. You are R&D all the time. And the best feedback to get is from customers. They're going to use it and tell you, no, this, this is terrible. This could be improved. And then you could improve the product. So, yeah, I agree. But, but at the same time, be careful because you got to do it gently and you got to do it slowly because if you can't just replace, you got to do what you, what the business is doing, do well, continue to do it and grow it and yeah. then add to it. But don't just try to add to it and, and, and destroy that other business or neglect that other side. Yeah. A lot of people, they jump into something and they buy something and go, or, you know, they get on the call with me and go, Hey, I'm, I've got an LOI. When I get to hold this business, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And then like, I really, right. yeah. my first thing is how fast are you going to do all that? Right. Right. And I like to play a game with them. I was like, cool, that guy that you just bought that business from and has been running it for one, the one that comes to my mind, the guy's been running this business for 42 years. Wow. So the guy's been, it was his first business he ever started. He had a home run the first shot and he's been running his whole life, right? He's in his seventies, maybe close to 80 now. And he's thinking about selling it. 42 years, he's been running this business and you're going to go in and make all these changes on day one. What makes you think right out of college more than somebody that's been in that industry, knows that industry and been running this and making two to $3 million a year profit every year for the last 30 something of the 40 something years. Probably tried in those 40 years. He's probably tried off of things you've already going to try now. So he, he probably could give you feedback and, and tell you why it didn't work at the time. And sometimes ideas don't work as a timing, you know, maybe it was too early and you got to try it later or you yeah. got to it or you got to tweak it. But yeah, I agree. And that coming back, that's why you've got to keep that founder on board. Use them as a sounding board, use that experience because it, even even as a seasoned entrepreneur such as myself, I think the biggest that any anybody can take and do as a CEO or as a searcher or as running a new business is being arrogant that you think you know better than everybody else. You've got to be very careful. So let's talk about, we're going to run out of time here, but let's just talk about one more thing before we wrap this up is what are you doing now for your search? How are you sourcing deals? What does your process look like so that other search funders can kind of get some ideas from for you, from you on the, how they, they go out and find things? Well, I'm, I, I'm finding a, a fair amount of traction in proprietary outreach. Uh, a lot of the deals are too small, although, you know, a lot of the responses are getting too small, but I, I still think they're very valuable. I will say I've, I've learned so much in the last six months, I've just enormous amount of, of information and, and knowledge being to other entrepreneurs. I've spoken to some. Uh, he, he grew his business over 10, 15 years to a 20 million a year business. And then he had a CFO, a fractional CFO, wasn't keeping his eye on the ball. And, and now he's in, you know, chapter 11, trying to work his way out of that. I've had others that have done very, very well, just pre COVID. The sales were doing this, but they were in the airline industry was the bulk of their customers and the COVID-19 hit and everything fell apart. So it's just been fantastic to hear the stories of different people learn from those stories, learn, learn and connect. And so I would say, you know, proprietary outreach. And if, even if they're not, I, I speak to everybody as far as proprietary outreach, because even if it's not right from the beginning, I seen see it's not a good fit for me. I still talk to them because first of all, it's connection. First of all, and secondly, I learn something. And thirdly, maybe if I'm in that space later on down the line, maybe there's a joint venture opportunity or a, a bolt-on opportunity later on. So be open-minded. And I use, of course, broken networks, but I also am reaching out to a lot of um, other searches uh, that maybe I, for example, gave a, a deal to a colleague of mine in Austin and they're under LOI and he's busy going through due diligence and probably closed. You transfer some businesses to others that that isn't your appearance, not your profile. They'll do better with it because it's their experience. 
and vice versa, they'll give you stuff that's not in their wheelhouse and is in your wheelhouse. So, you know, that's a lot of the deals that are being sourced just through colleagues and, and contacts and, and business brokers to an extent and, and, and outreach. Awesome. Awesome. I get that. You see a proprietary outreach, you do cold outreach and that type of stuff. Something you guys built in house with your, with the project you're on or. There, there's something built in house, but I mean, it's not that difficult. It's just a matter of having a genuine message. I think that's important. I think if you come at, look, you know, getting something to sell in your business is not about money, right? Cause in many cases, search funds don't offer more money, especially if you're in the higher end and you, you're in a 20, 30, $40 million space. Founders don't necessarily want to sell to, to the highest bid. I sold my first, the business I had a hundred employees on, I sold that business to a strategic and within a year that alienated my brand, that alienated my, my employees and that alienated my customers. I didn't even know what the hell they were doing, but there was arrogance. And so you've got to build the confidence of the seller, right? So it's not just building the confidence of the investors, but you've also got to build the confidence of the seller. And I think be real and in your outreach, be real, be yourself and, you know, offer something that, that others aren't offering. And that's essentially P firms aren't offering. And that's, that's a connection. How do people yeah. reach out to you? What's the best way for somebody if they, they heard, they heard something that they know there's a business out there you might want to see, or they want to connect with you and help you in your search or for whatever reason, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way you want them to do that? Yeah, I mean, other searchers, anybody who has a business, brokers, investors, you name it. Probably LinkedIn, uh, my LinkedIn page, probably the fastest and most efficient. Uh, just because I get so much email, I might miss it, but it's on LinkedIn, I'll get around to it. And your LinkedIn is linkedin.com slash n slash max, M-A-X dash business. Correct. And uh, I'll uh, put that in the show notes for people that can see that. Thank you very much, Ron. Great, great conversation. As always, very interesting and appreciate your time. Well, hang out for a few minutes after the show. We'll call that a show. And uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Ron. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now